This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Elizabeth Paquette, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Her book, Universal Emancipation, Race Beyond Badu, is just out from the University of Minnesota Press. What is Badu's theory of emancipation? For whom is this emancipation possible? Does emancipation entail an indifference to difference? In Universal Emancipation, Paquette pursues these questions through a sustained conversation with decolonial theory particularly the work of Sylvia Winter. Through consideration of negritude and the Haitian Revolution, Paquette argues for a theory of emancipation that need not subtract particularities, as Badu theorizes, but rather build a pluriconceptual framework, as Winter theorizes, for emancipation based on solidarity. Uh, Welcome, Elizabeth, to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here today. Would you start by telling us a bit about yourself, um, your background as a philosopher, and how you came to write this book based on your interests? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, I mean, I can start with my, my training. My, my training is in um, Ontario universities. Uh, I studied a, little, a lot of continental philosophy. I read a lot of Hegel, a lot of Heidegger, uh, and Beauvoir. Um, but I've always had an interest in social political philosophy, um, which I started developing in graduate school. And so I'd read, you know, Marx and Hobbes and Locke and then Aristotle's politics and Hegel's politics. Um, and then I started getting into Althusser, um, Balibar and Badiou. Um, and so there's always been this sort of um, French social political theory um, uh, path that I was on that ultimately led me to Badiou, which is the, what the, um, the topic of the book that uh, I wrote here. Um, but aside from that, I mean, there's, there are two other really big things that went into um, writing this book. Um, and the first one is that um, in reading Bad You, there was a, I was having a struggle with um, some of the things that he was uh, saying. And so in a certain sense, like I was drawn to it because I understood sort of where he was coming from or where he was trying to go. But there was always something that didn't quite sit right for me in thinking about um, what he was trying to do in this, in his, his very large corpus. Um, and so I started attending conferences. I went to a philosophy born struggle to the Caribbean Philosophical Association. Uh, and when attending these conferences and, and chatting with folks, it started to really push my understanding of politics and what politics um, were and what they could do. Um, and so, um, so 
I had this kind of pushing it and the struggle and these questions at the same time. Um, uh, also, um, back in September of 2016, I remember sitting down in a coffee shop and I was going to read um, read you about revolution. And a couple of days before this, uh, African-American man in Charlotte, um, Keith Lamont Scott, um, was murdered by police officers. And so I don't know if everyone remembers, but um, Charlotte, um, there were protests in Charlotte um, following um, Keith Lamont Scott's murder. Uh, and so it was weeks upon weeks of people protesting in the streets, calling for change. And I was thinking about myself sitting in this coffee shop, reading Badiou's sort of abstract philosophy about revolution when there is something happening in Charlotte um, that um, was a call to action. And so basically what happened is I, I left there and I went uh, and I you know, found folks um, to support and to organize with. And then a month later, I came back to the book. And then in that, I started sort of to, um, to confront the struggles that I was having with Badiou and to start thinking about um, what it is that philosophy should be doing and what my work, what I want my, wanted my work to be doing uh, in response to the things that um, were happening in Charlotte then, that were happening way before then, and continue happening um, now. Um, and sort of that's that's how I came to thinking about um, and working through this book, which ultimately is thinking about how it is that um, you know race uh, and racial emancipation fits into a theorist like Badiou and how he calls for emancipation. Yeah, and and so this is one of the primary concerns of your book is about Badu's demand that emancipation. Um, he says that it demands an indifference to difference, and that race is a particularity that must be overcome. And mm-hmm. you you argue that there is an irreducible Eurocentrism to this view, and it sort of makes you sitting in that coffee shop um, yeah. such a crystallization of, of, I think, the issues the book um, struggles with. And mm-hmm. so um, so would you first help us understand how Badiou comes to think of emancipation in this way, why this is a compelling view for him? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so again, like I can think about the historical parts of it. Um, and so for Badiou, you know, he's trying to deal with his disillusionment of why May 68 failed. Um, he's turning away from party politics at this point in time. And so intent, instead, he's, he's turning to thinking about um, organizing. And so he's organizing with various groups. Various groups. And so there's all these you know, newspaper articles that um, talk about the kind of work that he's doing in, in this, in that framework. Um, he also turns to step theory, um, which is, you know, um, a not very uh, conventional term, I think, for um, French political theorists. Um, and so, I you know, I had to go and, and you know, take courses on set theory and to try and understand what, what set theory is and why, why that matters for him. Um, but ultimately, he is concerned with revolution. He's concerned with thinking about the difference between, I think, revolution and reform. And so, in, in a certain sense, he's, he thinks that, um, you know, it's not, it's not good enough just to sort of reform a, a state to make it a little bit better, but something new has to come about. And so, he's working through that very various kinds of ways and he's trying to think about you know what does that revolution look like um and so he calls for this total break and then the question becomes for him you know what what does that total break look like and what's required in order to, to get to it and so he's trying to distinguish that from you know what there is and so you know, in some sense you know he's he's a phenomenologist and so he's thinking about the what there is versus you know the new and this other kind of way um, and so there's a ton of technical language that he engages with um, that I'll, I'll talk a little bit about now, although I'm, like, I don't want to get too much into the set theory, which is the foundation for it. 
um, but thinking instead about um, the, um, the social political implications for what he's talking about. Mm. He talks about worlds, um, and so we all live in worlds, um, you know, and worlds are organized in certain kinds of ways. Um, and um, he says that they're all organized by this thing called the transcendental index, right? And so um, this is, again, it's not, it's not really a, a new concept, right? So we have people talking about how worlds are organized by, you know, white supremacy, how they're organized by colonialism, capitalism, you know, so in a certain sense, like that, that's, um, that's consistent with social political theory, you know, for, for a while. Um, but then in addition to worlds, um, we also know that there are states for him. And so he distinguishes, you know, states in a world from the other side. And his concern about states is thinking about, you know, how is it that, um, that people, um, or what he calls bodies, um, get counted by the state. Um, and so ultimately his concern is he's, he's saying like, you know, a state is always going to fail. It's never going to be able to account for um, all those who are um, within the state. Uh, and so we can think, for instance, I mean, the debates around long-form census. Um, long-form census is always going to exclude people who are living in the United States and Canada. Um, so it's always going to fail in, in that kind of way, um, not only because of just how it operates, but also because of the implicit things that are, that are involved in it as well. Um, if we're talking about, you know, how it is that, you know, nation-states, um, you know, they they um, they count some people more than others, and it requires citizenship or residency of a certain kind. Uh, and so there's all these stipulations about how it is that people get counted in these ways. Um, but importantly for Bedou, this also means because you know um, there's a transcendental index that organizes both worlds and states. Like it could, it can change, right? So it doesn't mean mm. that the way things are is the way that they have to remain. It means that things can be different um, because they're they're contingent upon what that world is or what that what that state is. Um, and so ultimately, he's concerned with um, what he calls the inexistence. Um, and again, like, a lot of these terms go back to the set theory. Um, but basically, he's talking about how it is that people get left out of account. Uh, and what does it mean for people um, to be accounted for and accounted for what he says, how the inexistence um, appears um, within a state. And again, he's not saying that we just need to count people differently. He's saying that we need a, a wholly new state, you know, um, so that those who are inexistent can appear. Um, and so this is how we get to emancipation. Emancipation is an attempting to address the solution to the problem of how the count will always leave people out. And so he says, well, how do we figure out what that is and where do we look? Um, and so his first point is we can't look to the state. Now you can't look to the state to, to solve the solution because the state, a state that was going to maintain itself in a certain kind of way, it's going to maintain its power. Um, and so it's going to do whatever it can to maintain its power. Um, and so this is how he gets to um, the distinction he makes between additive politics and um, subtractive politics. Additive politics are politics that he's not for, and it's when a state kind of just keeps expanding to include more, um, but um, doesn't actually change. And so one of the examples that I have in the book uh, is um, same-sex marriage. Um, so in 2015, um, you know, uh, same-sex marriage became recognized by the United States federally. You know, it was already in various states, but federally became recognized. Um, and so in a certain sense, what we have here is an extension of rights to marry um, by the state to more people, right? So you're adding more more people in here. So no longer just for opposite sex people, it's also for same sex people. But this, the, um, that the state determines who can marry and not hasn't, hasn't really changed. It just sort of looks a little bit different. Um, and so what he turns to to think about subtractive politics, he just to justice, um, and again, this is not this is not necessarily a new question about justice. This is something that's been going on 
um, for quite a while. Um, like, where do we get what justice is? How do we understand what it is? If it comes from the state, the state might only be concerned and usually is only concerned about maintaining its own structure such that like justice always refers back to maintaining the state. And mm. so what happens if a state is inherently unjust? Where do you turn? You have to turn to something that exceeds that um, because you'll never find the answer within the thing itself. Um, and so justice then becomes a something that exceeds um, the state that we can turn to for thinking about emancipation. Um, and so for him, justice is truth. Uh, it's, and truth is this thing that's it's universal because it's not it's not determined by the transcendental index. It's not determined by the state. It exceeds it. And it's something that we can use on revolutionary movements. Um, and that's what he calls subjective politics. There's this turn to truth, this truth, turn to truth procedures, and this turn to um, what exceeds the state um, you know, for providing that kind of foundation. Um, and so truth procedures is, is I mean, it's a, sort of a... Um, uh, a complicated concept for him that he works out in all these various ways, but they're usually retrospective. Like you can't know what justice is sort of after um, you have to name it. Um, there has to be, it has to be a movement from the people, which is a kind of very generic term for him. He's looking at, uh, and it's just forcing this change to come about. So retrospectively they'll look and say, Oh, look, this is when, when that sort of um, movement started. Um, and so it's not it's not about electing new representatives. It's not about that kind of state politics, but it's about sort of turning to something that exceeds the state that's inherently unjust because of the way that it excludes people from um, the count. Um, and so you can think of like the Algerian Revolution as an example of that. Uh, maybe South, the South African anti-apartheid movement um, of all sort of reconstructing states according to new principles, um, and the Haitian Revolution, which we'll talk to we'll talk about a little bit later too. Um, and so for him. I mean, that's the thing that's necessary. It's necessary to turn to subjective politics, this move to um, to justice, justice as a kind of truth that exceeds um, how it is that the state operates. Um, and so this is kind of how you get to thinking about um, what he calls the indifference to difference or indifferences. Um, and so for him, politics must be indifference to difference, indifferent to difference, sorry. Um, and basically that means that it can't, it can't um, be based on things that are based on state. Um, so he draws this, this um, distinction between um, universal truth, justice on the one hand, and the other side, different particularity, um, and then sort of what there is um, on the other side. And the, 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 difference, um, the different side is thinking about what's, what's determined by the state, and then um, the universal and truth are what would exceed the state in these various ways. Um, so that's that's really sort of where where um, the rubber hits the road for me is thinking about um, well, what does he mean by difference? What does he mean by particularity? Um, and how is it that those operate um, within his theory? And what does it mean to exclude those things? And the important part about that is that when he thinks about things that are particular or what counts as difference, he means explicitly. Um, culture, on the one hand, culture can never be political and they're inherently uh, in opposition with each other. And he also thinks that race is something that's um, based in the state, it's based in difference, and based in particularity, and therefore can never be part of um, politics or this universal move. Yeah, and so this is, you use the Sartre, Sartre and Fanon's debate about negritude to set up your then your critique of the of the indifference to difference um, 
for Baudu. And mm. um, part of the reason this debate seems so productive for you as a framing is because Sartre and Fanon are in such opposition about um, whether race or particularity has to be sublated for for universal emancipation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of align Sartre and Badiou on one hand, and then Fanon, Césaire, Winter, and, and many other readers of Negritude um, on, on the other. And so, um, so why this genealogy, right? Like why set it up using this debate? What, what was compelling to you about the, the Sartre-Fanon debate that made it such a such a, a productive site for thinking through this problem you saw in Badu. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think you, you really, um, you got on the nose there. Like it's, it was, it was so formative for my thinking about what was happening in Badu. And it's because of these, because Badu sees himself as a Sarkian and the connection between Winter and Fanon is, is, um, is very strong as well as also um, stay there. And so when this debate came up between Fanon and Sarkian, in a certain sense, I was like, like, that thing is already there. That debate, the conversation, in many ways, is already there between Fanon and, and Sartre. And I was surprised that one, you know, readers of Bedu hadn't hadn't thought about it, and also I mean, Bedu himself um, had never thought about it. You know, this is not something that's hidden. Uh, it's not something that um, is is not talked about. It's it's a very very much prevalent. Um, and he never actually returned to that discussion that they had. And all of it really returns turns around um, discussions of negritude. And so I use negritude throughout the book. It comes up at various points in time, uh, and it's become a really sort of central um, touch point for all these authors. Um, and that's also because, um, so I, I had these decisions about Baidu back in, uh, back in 2015, 2016. Um, and then uh, in um, 2016, he published a book called Black. Um, and in this very small book, he starts talking about the negritude movement. And so this is really sort of his first time where he talks about um, race and he talks about the negative movement explicitly. Uh, and when I read that, everything fell into place. You know, yes. the, the debate sort of laid it out really clearly and he was, he was explicitly taking a side um, that was very implicit in the rest of his works. Um, so for, for those who don't know, I mean, the um, Fanon Sartre uh, debate happens between Black Orpheus and Black Sea Mass in chapter five. Uh, and it's a discussion about um, negative and what negative um, can do, um, or and how it is that we need to think about in relation to to politics. And so again, like it's it's just it's drawing on this idea of um, what's what the role of politics is. Um, and so Sartre um, proposes in this essay, Black Orpheus, which is the introduction to a um, a negritude reader that was put together by um, Senghor, um, is it that race is something that has to be overcome in order to achieve emancipation. Um, and so um, he's dealing with this this um, this juxtaposition between class and race. Um, and so again, this goes back to a, num- a number of people who've talked about the, the tension that exists between class and race in um, often classical um, Marxism. And so the idea is that you know race is something that's particular, just just like Baji says. Um, yes, race consciousness is important, um, but ultimately it's one step along the way to universal emancipation, um, which we get to through class. Um, and so what Fanon is dealing with is saying, well, what does it mean for you to say that race is something that once gets over and then you turn to class? Um, and so what he's, he's locating is that there's a hierarchy that starts to be developed mm-hmm. by Sartre to say, well, you know, race, race is important, but yes, but class is actually more important because class impacts 
all of us, whereas race only impacts some people. And so this is, turns this conversation about how um, race is uh, not universal because it only impacts some people and not others. Um, and class is something that, you know, um, all of us need to sort of come to. Um, and so he engages in discussion about, you know, sublimating race, whether to get universal emancipation um, in, this, in these very same ways. Um, and so Fanon is read in a number of different ways in, in, this, um, in this debate. Uh, and so I don't want to say um, in a certain sense, you know, Fanon re rejects negritude um, uh, you know, according to a number of Fanon scholars. I wouldn't, I wouldn't debate that. Um, but the point that I sort of want to focus on is that uh, he does say that the idea that, you know, class is more important than race or that there is that dialectical relationship or that, you know, he has to get over his race to get to class is inherently problematic. Um, so regardless of sort of where the endpoint is, this that point reinforces this, this racial hierarchy um, that had already existed. Um, so... Uh, yeah, because what you start setting up there then is the importance of like a positive conception of race, right? Kind of regardless of how Fanon and Sartre work it out, there's a genealogy of that positive conception. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's, there's this sort of two parts to it, right? And so there's the one hand, the idea that, you know, race is something that's only that's only negative that has to be uh, gotten over. But then there is this positive side as well. Um, and again, like this, the positive side of race um, is, again, a contentious Point, um, and not all Fanon scholars would agree that that's, that that's the case. Um, but what I do through a number of critical race theories is sort of locate um, how it is that race is conceived as something that's different from this particular thing that has to has to be gotten over. And so we can think back to we can think back to Badiou and, and in race being particular for him, it means that race is something that was determined by um, hierarchical structures. Um, and so we could think to Fanon talking about how the white gaze. Um, you know, um, imposed upon him a conception that he was racialized. Um, and that's true. And that's, that's a negative conception of race that Captain, Captain W. Bell um, outlined very beautifully in this, in this essay about um, Fanon as well. Um, but in addition to that, there are other conceptions of race that are operating. And so for Badiou, Badiou and Sartre, there's sort of no regard for this, this, um, this positive conception of race. Um, but there is, there is also a very um, strong history about thinking about how race is something more than what has been determined by the state, by white supremacy, by the white gaze, for instance. Um, and so, I mean, you can turn to another people like Fanon in 1952, um, W.E.B. Du Bois um, wrote The Conservation of Race in 1897, where he's arguing that there is something other than this negative conception of race and that there's something about race that can be sort of maintained um, even if, if, um, even if the, the overcoming of, uh, of racism, racism. And so it's not a matter of like, well, you just get over race and then you find a class, but that there's something that can be maintained uh, and something that can be persistent. Um, and that that conception of race is really important to think about when we think about, uh, when we think about politics. Um, Lucius T. Outlaw Jr. and T.K. Jeffers also offer um, these really beautiful um, discussions about what positive conceptions of race look like in talking about W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and Chica Jeffers in particular talks about um, black joy and what black joy is. Um, and so uh, all of that is about thinking about all these positive ways in which one can think about race rather than thinking of it as something that just needs to be gotten over, so that needs to be sublated. Um, and um, 
you know, I think that this is something that's really, um, really prevalent in um, certain Marxist thinking. Uh, and it's thinking about how it is that these, these categories uh, come up. And so the way that I think about it sometimes is that um, for Marxists, the, the proletariat is a category that's determined by capitalism. And so after you have um, the revolution, uh, the category of the proletariat will no longer exist. Right? That's, that's the foundation for the revolution. There should be no more class. There should be no more proletariat. And so to sort of map that on to thinking about race at the same time, you know, after the revolution, there should be no race because race was a product of um, that, that um, hierarchical structure. Um, but what um, W.E. Du Bois, Fanon, Outlaw, Jeffers um, have all been saying is that it doesn't actually map on the same way and that instead we also need to be accounted for a positive conception of race. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Um, and so, I mean, in addition to these things, there's all these other reasons why a positive conception of race is so important. Um, and so I really like how Catherine Sevilla Bell, um, she talks about um, how positive conceptions of race are important for the about collective memory. Uh, yeah, and so even Fanon, like he talks about like talking about having like a Black history and how Black history is so important for a Black future, um, and I think that 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 resonates also with the importance of the positive conception of race. Um, uh, Outlaw talks about how um, like how conceptions of race uh, as positive are also reasons for engaging in politics, and Sylvia Winder talks about it as you know that provides a condition for both knowledge and understanding. Uh, and so my reading of negritude, um, which again, like it's, it's often not, um, it's not a very uh, conventional reading of negritude often, but I think this is what negritude is, is attempting to do is it's attempting to, to think about how it is that race is something that is, um, not just negative, not just that it needs to be overcome, but it's something that's positive, that's creative, that's dynamic, that's changing over time, that's future oriented, uh, and, um, and therefore also political at the same time. I think about, um, you know, at the end of Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, Hortense Spillers talks about, um, like, gaining the insurgent ground. There's such a, a conceptualization of the creative potential in monstrousness, you know, and, like, that sort of positive conception um, out of an, in an essay that's really clearly acknowledging um, the negative formation of race, right? But that there's this also this profound um, care about about positive conceptions and what can be built um, and what can be remembered and how that can fund um, creative possibilities. Yeah. Um, and so, so Badu in a sense is like, mm -hmm. he has this anti-racist impulse with the indifference mm -hmm. or, or like it's a, it's, it's not just an impulse, right? It's an elab elaborate sort of theoretical scheme, right? Yeah. To try yeah. to deal with racism. Um, but it, it misses this, right? It misses this, um, this whole line of thinking about a positive conception of race that you're identifying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that like there, there are a number of ways that I can make an approach by you with this, you know, in a certain sense, we could ask like, well, can't you just add it in or could it look, could it look mm. different? But I think that for Badu and his theory, that there's a, a fundamental problem that happens in his theory because his entire theory is based on this indifference to difference. Uh, it's based yeah. on back to theory. 
and it's not just you know all now that we have this conception of race. It just it just fails to to get to that to that point. Um, and I think it's because it reinforces a Eurocentric um, framework. Um, and again, like this is something that, in, in a certain sense, that you is attempting to to um, to address in his theory of race. We're saying like, oh, we can't look to whatever it is that's organizing us. We have to look to what exceeds us. But ultimately, what ends up happening is that he's further entrenching a European structure, a European conception of emancipation, in his political theory. Um, so in, like, he could be a critique of himself if he was aware of it, but um, I'm not that's sure. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but it's a positive conception of white supremacy, right, is impossible. And so there's a way in which mm-hmm. like that has to be overcome for emancipation. Um, but he's not, because of the Eurocentric view, right, he's not taking on this whole other possibility um, that yeah. Fanon, Cesare Winter, yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's, I mean, it's been a conversation that's been happening for, you know, at least since W.E.B. Du Bois back in, uh, you know, 1897, uh, but if not, and also, you know, before that. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, in a certain sense, what has to happen is it's not, it's not the subtractive thing that has to happen, it, it has to be um, more about situating um, situating a project from uh, a marginal position. And unless Deuce does that, unless he can do that, which is inconsistent with the project that he's that he's offered, it'll just end up recentering white folks um, and the Eurocentric um, structure over and over again. Um, and so one of the ways for me, one of the, one of the key texts I keep coming back to, you know, I think that... Um, Horton Spiller's text is, is, is amazing. Um, and also Kimberly Crenshaw, um, mapping mm. organs, you know, and so her articulation there about, you know, what does gender oppression look like? Um, and how does uh, addressing gender oppression, like what are ways that it's done and what are some of the implications of it? Right. And so she talks about how, you know, if you think about gender along a single axis, you will recenter white women um, because you've actually failed to address how it is that Gender oppression is complicated by racial oppression, and how you can't you can't think of those things separated from each other. And so that's the kind of thing that I think that Badji is doing. He's trying to sort of separate things and say, you know, we're working through with the four all in this way. But we want to talk about race. What that does is that'll re- recenter um, white folks in a very similar, a very similar way. Um, and so again, with this idea of thinking about class over race, and, and again. This is, not, this is not new to me. This is the conversation that's been going on for a very long time, that if you think about class to the exclusion of race, what you end up doing is you end up centering white proletariat workers um, to the exclusion of, you know, like a multitude of proletariat and working class people um, who won't get accounted for in these ways. Um, so M.S. Cesare did this in his letter to Maurice Therese in 1956 when he resigned from the French Communist Party. Um, Cedric Johnson, uh, Robinson um, begins Black Marxism uh, in 1983 with the same point. Uh, Lind- uh, Leon Trotsky in 1930, yeah. you know, he's naming that, you know, if white workers want to support black workers, they have to say, well, we support you on your own terms and not put you in service to us. You know, and I, when I read that, like, I, I was flabbergasted, you know, again, because there's the same narrative comes up over and over again about how class is the universal racism that you have to get over. But this argument has happened in various circles over and over again for, you know, at least the last hundred years, if not, if not more. Um, and so I think that, like, these, often these conversations about universality, that's like a little, that's abstract, but, you know, it's not quite, um, it's not quite formed from any particularity. 
I think it often runs a risk of falling into these kinds of hierarchies and, and kinds of um, uh, kinds of um, problematic structures. Um, and I hear that actually, I hear this a lot about um, at climate change. And this came up in discussion about this in my book at one point in time. And I was asked, you know, what about climate change? Is climate change the thing that impacts us all? We don't, you know, we don't worry about race, but we worry about climate change. Uh, I you know I've been I've been thinking about this question more and more, and the more I read, you know, climate change is, is something that's already impacting marginalized folks, mm-hmm. it's already impacting black and brown folks. It's not this future devastation. It's something that's been happening, you know, for you know 150 years, if not more. Um, and so, right. what happens in that discussion of climate change is what people become primarily concerned with it because it's going to impact them, and not recognizing it's been impacting folks for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to understand what's going on in contemporary Bangladesh without thinking about it as as climate driven migration and yeah, no. yeah, 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 or like that COVID was called initially the Great Equalizer, mm-hmm. um, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's not that's not how it's playing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so one of the um, one of the historical events or like series of historical events you then um, take us to is the Haitian revolution to think through um, positive conceptions of particularity. And you especially focus on this 1805 constitution. So how does this, will you, will you, first of all, like how did the, how did the Haitian revolution become this sort of touch point? Because it works so well in your critique of Badu. I was like, right. I see, you know, it really works. So how did you get there um, to using that? And then, and then will you tell us about how the Haitian revolution helps you do some of this work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the the Haitian revolution, um, it came up for a number of reasons. Um, So one, uh, Bedu references the Haitian revolution in, um, in, in some of his political writings. Uh, And so he names sort of this moment as like, you know, um, as an example of, of his conception of emancipation. Um, but that was a really sort of short foot, short line or two that he sort of just um, injects. Um, but then what happened is that Nick Nesbitt um, actually wrote um, one one book, um, and he talks about it in other books as well, where he's he's using Bedu's framework to think through the Haitian Revolution. Um, and so um, so that was really helpful, first of all, that like there are people who are doing Bedu studies on the Haitian Revolution. So I could turn to these various resources, including Bedu himself, even though he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, and then also, I mean, I think that it, it became to be a really um, a hard problem, I think, for thinking about how it is that Bedu, um, Bedu thinks about emancipation and how he thinks about universal emancipation. And so um, and it's in some ways, it's also because it's very much a, a touchstone uh, event in thinking about race and politics. Um, you know, so it has, it has all this history behind it, all these discussions about it, and both Baju and Baju scholars um, are working on, are working on this, on this problem, this question. Um, and so, I mean, um, the, the, the general points about it, you know, are the, the Haitian revolution for Baju, he calls it emancipatory in the way that he talks about emancipation. You know, he calls it political, uh, in the way that um, the the principles of it transcend the state rather than are imminent to it, and so right, it has conceptions of justice um, uh, and uh, justice against dehumanization as sort of the foundation for it, and therefore he says that something is political, right? So it checks all those boxes for bad use. It's mandatory because it's political because it's universal, um, which also means that for bad you, uh, it can't be based in race, 
um, which is um, really interesting. Uh, and also, it's um, it can't be cultural, right? So it could, because for him, cultural is something that's based in states, it's imminent to it, um, and that culture can't be political in those ways. And this is also how he like juxtaposes the Haitian Revolution and the Negritude movement. So the Negritude mo- movement is inherently a cultural movement for Bedu, and therefore can't be political. Um, and by correspondence, you know, the Haitian Revolution uh, is universal and therefore it, it can be political in these ways. Um, and so Nick Nesbitt, in his, his discussion of it, and again, this, this is it's in some ways a very mainstream way of thinking about the, the Haitian Revolution, is it has these inherent ties to the French Revolution, right? So the French Revolution happened, you know, um, just prior to the start of the Haitian Revolution. Um, and so what we see is um, Toussaint Louverture, who was, you know, one of the, the, the main figures of the Haitian Revolution, um, writes um, documents in 1792 uh, and also the 1801 Constitution of, of Saint-Domingue, which is what it's called at this point in time, um, sort of setting the foundation for. And in these, this document, this Constitution, you know, he's really depending upon the language of the French Revolution. So thinking about the rights of man, the rights of man as something that is universal, um, and um, therefore, for Bedou, it can be mandatory and political, right? So it falls, again, it checks all those boxes for him. Um, and so all those things are true, definitely. I'm not, I'm not debating them. But what I find really interesting is that, you know, for Nesbitt and Bedou, that, that these are the documents they choose um, and that they, but that's only part of the story of the Haitian Revolution. And so I started reading um, more folks in the Haitian Revolution and started looking back uh, into, you know, um, the rest of the history of the Haitian Revolution and what this story leaves out. You know, and it's, it leaves out that, you know, in 1801, um, Haiti, which is actually Saint-Domingue, uh, is still a French colony, right? So Saint-Domingue was a French colony, and it wasn't until 1804 that they declared themselves independent of the French colony because they're, they're of, the, uh, of the French um, colonial nation state. Um, and so because they are... Still a French colony, they're still subject to French colonial rule. Um, also, at the same time, you know, forced labor still exists on the island, um, and so we can think, well, how is it that you think of, you know, um, the the Haitian Revolution according to the rights of man in 1801 when there's still forced labor uh, in happening simultaneously? Um, Napoleon is also threatening to re reimpose slavery on Saint Domingue, given that he is like also now now in charge or still in charge of the French colonial state. Um, and then also Mawaz, who is a nephew of Toussaint um, and who was fighting along with Toussaint, um, critiques Toussaint, saying that Toussaint's, um, you know, his 1801 constitution uh, is Toussaint trying to appease the white landowners who remained in, in Saint-Domingue at that time. And so Mawaz says, you know, you know, we really need to focus on um, the, the black people from Saint-Domingue and think about revolution in this other kind of way. Um, so again, it's, it's not until 1804 that Haitians declare um, a sovereign nation, they're no longer under colonial rule. And in 1805, they create a constitution. And in this constitution, they declare that all citizens of Haiti are black. Um, and so, I mean, this, this raised a number of questions to me. You know, So why is it that Nesbitt does not think about the 1805 Constitution. And what does this mean for Bedu's political theory? If we follow it through to the 1805 Constitution and these various sort of critiques about slavery, uh, colonization that existed over the 1792 and 1801, um, you know, um, 1801 Constitution, 
Um, and so what we see is that, you know, while 1801 engages in the language of universality, the 1805 document clearly centers race. Um, yeah. And so for Badiou, you know, it, it raises the question of, is, is because of that, does it then become a cultural movement for Badiou? Um, or is it political and political in a way that centers race? You know, and so Badiou, Badiou doesn't, doesn't seem to be able to include race, you know, the way that I've talked about it before. Um, and then, and what, and then what does it mean to say that it's a cultural movement, not a political one? You know, if there's a political movement for emancipation, Haitian revolution is really held up as, you know, one of the, one of the foremost moments when, uh, you know, the, the, the people changed the structure of the state uh, and created one in which they were no longer in and they appear, right? So it seems to fit but the structure that Bedu has provided for us, it doesn't, it doesn't really work in that way. Um, so what I do with this uh, example is I, I use it as, you know, to show the limitations of Bedu theory. You know, given his structure, either it's the case of the, the, the Haitian, either it's the case that you can include race, um, given the 1805 constitution, or it's the case that he would think it's a cultural movement, which would be inherently problematic. And in all cases, what it shows is that Badiou's failure to count for race in thinking about emancipation is a failure of his system writ large. You know, it's it's the it's a problem that he can't that we can't quite think ourselves out of given his framework. Yeah, there's sort of uh, this inflexibility about how to think through historical events, right? Like he just it's like mm -hmm. we're just not going to talk about 1805, right? Like we'll. <laughs> There's some other places. We like these other events. They fit. Um, uh, and so we'll just focus on those. And so this way that history then has to get reframed, right? There's a, mm. it's subtractive, right? Like these certain yeah. events have to get subtracted out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, I mean, that, that raises a really interesting point about Badiou. You know, a lot of the discussions around him too is, you know, what's the role of history in, it, in his, his, his corpus and his theory? And it seems as though like history plays a really small role in this way. And, and but history is, is really important, especially for you know marginalized folks, you know, and so yeah. maintaining history and maintaining one one's own history, one's own story becomes particularly important and not just something that, you know, just goes away kind of thing. Right. And just I mean, if you Google Haitian Revolution, right? Like there's <laughs> there's just a huge amount of work, right? Done on yeah. on remembering these events. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, the, it seems like the thinker who becomes then most helpful for you in thinking about particularity in emancipation is Sylvia Winter, um, and particularly the concept of liminality that she develops. Um, so, so how does she help you um, think against this problem in Badu or sort of like move past it or like understand why it's why it's a really important problem that does have another approach. Yeah, I mean, so um, I I want to say, like, if, if people haven't read The Book of Sylvia Winter, I, I highly uh, encourage you to go read her work. I think that she's she's a really, um, she's a really, really impressive um, theorist. Uh, and that's true for many reasons. Like, she's very expansive in her in her way of thinking uh, and very, um, very clear uh in some ways, uh, and also very difficult to engage with in other ways, but in ways I think that are difficult are really important because um, she's yeah, doing really important agreed. work. Um, and so, you know, if you read her essays, her essays are 90 pages long and, you know, it, it, it takes you through some things, um, but there's yeah. a lot yeah. of... <laughs> That's a good way to describe it, yeah. <laughs> um, 
but but she I think I think she does that very much on on purpose. Uh, and so I was drawn yeah. to her work because she's she's a, a, a system thinker, right? So she thinks this is very large, expansive systems, um, and um, and she also engages in this relationship between particularity and universality. She also engages in things about the negative movement. Um, she doesn't talk about the Haitian Revolution, but I think you know there are a lot of really um, really great um, overlaps um, or points of contact between Sylvia Winter uh, and Bedu um, that for me made it really fruitful and made it really um, really helpful to be able to bring them in conversation while also showing how it is you know that, that Winter exceeds Bedu in these very important ways, particularly because of the way that she talks about universality and particularity um, and also how she thinks about emancipation. Um, and so, you know, there's just, there's, I'm, I'm slowly working through all of her essays. I haven't gotten there yet. She's a very prolific writer, so it's going to take me um, my sabbatical, hopefully, to, to go through them all. Um, but, there's, but there's a lot That's of... A sabbatical goal. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, a, there's a lot of um, a lot of really important things that she's, she's engaging with. Um, and so for her, um, when she thinks about particularity and universality, they're not mutually exclusive categories, which I think is really important. And so... For Badiou and Sartre, you know, they, they create these sort of juxtaposition, either something is universal or is particular. You know, it's almost as though like one is one is good, one's bad, or one's political, one's not political, essentially. Um, and for uh, Winter, she's thinking about how it is uh, essentially that universality needs to be filled by particularity. And I think it's a really beautiful way of sort of thinking about um, you know, universality is not like this abstract thing that just gets applied, but that like it comes from these various pluralistic positions, right? There's sort of no one one place that it comes from. Uh, it's not like this pure universality that Badu seems to be sort of um, presupposing, but instead is this um, very rich, dynamic, um, multiplicitous um, way of thinking about universality. It's, it's filled almost in this, um, um, like there's an abundance, uh, essentially, which I think is a really, really beautiful way of thinking about it. Um, and so for her, you know, in contrast to Badiou, who says, you know, we start from what exceeds, for, for Winter, she starts with a liminal position. And the liminal position is a position that's um, been, been marginalized in, you know, whatever space um, one's, one's located in. Um, and for her, the liminal position um, is a position from which change becomes possible. And so it's not, in a certain sense, an overarching um, system um, in the way that Badiou frames it. And I think of uh, what he's doing is, you know, um, he has a very sort of conventional conception of emancipation sometimes. It's like, you know, the people take to the street and then they take over the buildings and then, you know, um, they institute a new structure. Um, but I think that what Winter makes possible is thinking about um, all the various kinds of ways that we can think about politics, that we can think about emancipation as not just a sort of national struggle, but happens in a variety of other ways um, because it's based in this kind of in this liminal position. Um, and so the important thing for her is that the liminal position, you know, um, the liminal position exceeds the hierarchical structure um, in the same way that Baidu talks about, or in similar ways that Baidu talks about um, how it is just as exceeds um, the, the state of the world that he's talking about. Um, but for Winter, it's, it's this, um, it relies more on thinking about um, W.E.B. Du Bois's double consciousness. You know, mm. and so um, as uh, an African-American man, W.E.B. Bullies talks about, you know, how it is he both sees, you know, how it is that he he, he sees um, how the world is for, for white people. He sees how the world is for him as racialized, 
And then he also has his own experience of, of himself um, in relation to his race, right? And so going back to the conservation of race, we have, you know, the, we have the, we have whiteness, we have the negative conception of race, and then we have the positive conception of race, you know, operating simultaneously. And so that in this position of double consciousness uh, and this, um, and sort of maintaining this, this um, positive conception of race, um, that that becomes a thing that exceeds the hierarchical structure. So it's not like looking to justice, it's thing that's, that's outside, it's based in people's lived experiences and how they become informed about how the world is organized according to those, those, those marginalized positions. Um, and so, you know, for Winter, this is an epistemic position. You know, this is a position from which one can come to know. Um, and it's through experience, these experiences that one comes to know um, how the world is organized and then also how the world could be organized differently. Um, and so this is this is very different from what that Jew states, uh, who says that you know the presumption that one might know the world differently in a certain sense because of their positionality is inherently problematic for him. Like it just it doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't map onto it. I think one point point in time he says, you know, um, that it's barbaric to think that someone you know who is um, queer would have a better understanding of of um, how the world is organized according to you know queer and straight, for instance. Um, and so again, this is this is a, a point that you know Badu just can't he just can't get to the importance of um, positive conceptions of race uh, and the kinds of things that it brings with it, like knowledge, this epistemic values uh, and, and and experiences. Um, and so Winter draws on the negative movement for for thinking about this possibility for this um, critical position. So understanding this the, the critical position from which one can understand how the hierarchical structures operate such that people um, are racialized, and then also um, from this positive conception of race as exceeding that present order. Uh, and so we can think about that in a certain sense. Like right now, there are folks um, who, you know, who have conceptions that exceed, you know, have, have conceptions of how the world may be differently than is organized right now because of the way in which they are, are marginalized according to this, this social order. Uh, and so while, while Badu is not concerned about that, Winter is more so concerned, you know, with, um, you know, starting from those positions rather than starting from from essentially from above, it would seem for for Bedu. Um, yeah. And so she's, I mean, she's interested in you know new objects of knowledge. And so, I mean, she is an academic. She's very much um, engaged in, in thinking about academia in these ways. And she, you know, she's had various relationships to. Um, uh, and she founded, I think it was the um, 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 Africana uh, Studies or uh, Department. Um, and so, thinking about the importance of engaging. Uh, engaging these questions within academia and elsewhere as well. But she's definitely interested in thinking about, you know, what new objects of knowledge look like. And again, that's not just in academia, right? That's also, you know, um, that's also new objects of knowledge exist um, in in a multitude of of places. Um, But then for her also, the thing to recognize is that, you know, this is is inherently a political project, right? Negritude was a political project. Um, Understanding um, of these positive conceptions of race that's a political project also at the same time. And that starting from his own positions is um, both political and um, the site for change. And so, you know, from this formal position, she also develops um, uh, what she calls a pluriconceptual framework that she draws from C.L.R. James. Um, you know, if you read um, various um, Winter scholars, you know, they'll, they'll talk about how it is that um, Winter has exceeded James uh, in various ways. And so, um, you know, here, you know, she talks about how, you know, if you want to understand, understand class, you have to start with thinking about colonialism and the slave trade. You know, you can't just think about class. You have to think about um, 
you need to think about those positionalities um, before you can just sort of talk about class generally. Um, you need to think about multiplicity of ide- identities, um, multiplicity of oppressions, um, and that recognizing that you know these multiplicities requires a multiplicity of solutions. You know, there's not going to be a one size fits all. Um, you know, solution to the problem that there's no you know, single one mode of oppression that, you know, we can address and everyone will be free, but it requires instead this pretty conceptual framework. Um, and so that's, for me, that's, that's something mm. that is really fruitful in winter is thinking about, you know, it's not, it's, it's going to be messy. And I think, and I think that's really true about how she's, she's concerned with what's happening here. It'll be messy. You know, it's not as though we can just sort of say, well, here's the solution. It has to be a multi-pronged approach for multiple, for multiple positionalities, essentially. Right. And there's all of these um, messy historical antecedents that we can draw from and see um, as informing uh, the the work of emancipation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah. No, please, please. Oh, yeah. And, and just quickly, like, that is not all na- nation, uh, national conceptions of, like, um, of resistance, right? So Angela Davis talks about how mm. black women were, were poisoning slaveholders you know, when they were enslaved and that those are like, those are political moments. And those are also moments in which, you know, people, you know, you know, engage, you know, um, their autonomy and, you know, they, they, they're working towards emancipation for sure. Yeah. I love that actually, when you kind of linger on that, it, it doesn't always have to be um, these sort of like great big events um, that, that, you know, garner headlines, but that there can be, this sort of like micro work of emancipation um, that we should also linger over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, so then I got to the last line of your book and I'm gonna go ahead um, and read the actually the last two lines um, because I found them startling and then I was I found myself really appreciative of them and I would just love for you to talk about how this became the conclusion of your conclusion so you write, it is not my intention to save Badu or compel others to engage with his political project. Rather, I aim to demonstrate the importance of reading decolonial theory writ large. Uh, so, um, about the, so the last line of the book. So basically, um, you know, I struggled. I struggled with why I wrote to write this book for a really long time, and I and I thought about that last sentence um, a number of times, and I revised it. Um, and you know, I thought, you know, given Given my critique of Badu, you know, given the inherent social problems I see with his work, I, I wondered, you know, why should I write this book? Why should I contribute to Badu scholarship um, in these ways? Uh, and why do I want to be part of that, that conversation? You know, I think there, there are better ways that I might spend my time. Um, but I think that in some ways um, it was it was important for me to write this book and it was important sort of intervention um, to write this book. Um, and that's in part because, you know, I didn't find anyone um, who is writing a Badu scholarship, um, who is offering a critique of Badu in these various ways. Um, and so one, I thought that was problematic because, you know, there are these cults that operate around Badu as though he's, he's the most sort of radical, um, thinker, um, of the emancipation. Um, and yet there are these inherent problems that I see with, with his, um, with his, with his corpus and his, his overall structure of his, his writing. Um, but I also think that the problems that are located in, in Badu's work, they exceed his work too. And so they exist also in other, um, other areas of, uh, often I think, you know, largely, um, French political theory. Uh, and some of it I think goes back to the idea, 
of the French, you know, the French state, and this happens in Quebec too, you know, where the public is um, free of religious symbols, for instance, uh, and you, and that's something that only exists, you know, uh, in the privacy or in the home. But you know, given that you know we maintain this idea, um, you know, there's um, that the presumption is that people can be more free because of it. But what ends up happening, like we see in Quebec, is that um, sometimes you know it, it it turns really quickly into thinking, you know, well, no religious symbols often means you know, well, um, Christian symbols are fine, um, but um, you know, Muslim Muslim symbols are are not fine. Uh, and so then we have the alienation of Muslim and Islamic folks uh, in Quebec, for instance. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, um, I think there's a really important move to be uh, made in sort of engaging Beju in this way and also, you know, other um, other theorists as well. Um, and the other thing too is, you know, uh, I, I want to encourage more people to read, you know, decolonial theory. And so people who are reading Beju, you know, um, in a certain sense, I'm like, well, Beju's Beju's not the only game in town, you know, go read, go read Sylvia Winter, read, you know, Du Bois, read, um, Fanon um, and you know Outlaw, you know all these wonderful Catherine Sylvia Bell, all these wonderful scholars have been in this work for so long, who are engaging in the very same kind of questions that you're that you you might be um, engaging with, but coming from a, from a different perspective. Um, so that that line is really like a it's it's the evidence of like you know um, I I feel conflicted about it. I still feel conflicted about it in a number of ways, um, but ultimately I hope that you know this this engages people to sort of think more critically about Badu. Mm. Um, well, great. And so what are you working on now? So, um, so I'm on sabbatical right now. So I have two projects that are ongoing. Um, I have more time, um, fortunately. Um, and so one is I'm working on an edited collection um, on Badu and sexual difference, uh, actually. And so one of the limitations of the book is that I don't actually engage with his conception of sexual difference. But, you know, to do that, I have to get into Lacan, so it's not just set theory, it's also psychoanalysis that I have to get into, and, and that just felt like a um, too big of a um, um, task to take on in the one book. Um, and so in this edited collection, um, I'm, I'm um, working with people globally to think about the relationship between bad you and sexual difference, um, hopefully in, in these critical veins. Um, and the second project, which is one that I'm more excited about right now, is uh, I'm working on a, another manuscript on, on Sylvia Winter. Um, and so this is why I'm reading, reading her corpus and getting into all of it. Uh, I'm just the starting point of it, um, but it's thinking about you know how solidarity works through um, her, her corpus and her projects. And so thinking about the relationship between her work and critical indigenous studies. And so sometimes there's a tension between um, you know Black diaspora studies and critical indigenous studies. Um, and so how is it that my, my suspicion is that she's actually um, pretty careful in, in not erasing um, indigeneity in her project. Um, and then also thinking about it alongside of feminist theory, environmental racism, and Marxism. So I just I just finished the chapter on uh, environmental theory, uh, environmental racism, uh, and winter. Uh, and so it's 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 been a very enjoyable project to get into. So excellent, yeah. excellent. Well, I look forward to reading it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, and thank you for having me again. Uh, I really enjoyed it, uh, and I appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, it was really my pleasure.